0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. And I'm joined today by Dr. Wendy Johnson. She is professor of psychology at the University of Edinburgh. She also holds the share in differential development in the University of Edinburgh's department of psychology and center for cognitive aging and cognitive epidemiology. She is known for her research on human intelligence and personality. In 2004, the international society for intelligence research honored her with the John B. Carroll Award for Research Methodology. In 2011, she received the American Psychological Association's Award for Distinguished Scientific Early Career Contributions to Psychology in recognition of her work on the individual differences of intelligence and personality. Topics of our research include the structure of intelligence and personality, lifespan development of intelligence and personality, health and aging, genetic and environmental transactions, and their influences on behavior, intelligence, and personality. So Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you a lot for taking the time.
1: Oh, thanks for being interested in interviewing me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let let me just ask you first, just before we get into more specific questions related to personality and intelligence. Uh, So I've already had on the show people like, for example, Dr. Louis Goldberg, and I talked with him, of course, about the big five personality traits. Uh, And I would like to ask you, since you study personality and the aspects of personality uh, that are stable during our lifespan and perhaps other aspects that change more and things like that, Uh, Do you think that the Big Five offers us a a scientific uh, basis to properly study personality in all its variations, let's say?
1: (laughs) I think that it's a model that certainly has inspired a lot of personality research, but... Um, I don't think it's a particularly good model. I think the traits are too broad, and we aren't even really clear about what their definitions are. When you look at different people's measures of each of the traits, they include different specific kinds of behaviors, and many, many behaviors, of course, could fit into any of the trait boxes, and well, It's really saturated with social desirability and it's it leaves out a lot of other stuff too Um, sexuality, religiosity, um, the kinds of things that that motivate people to have various values are pretty much missing from it except for everything that we tend to consider desirable in, in people and tend to reward. That's there in, in um, spades all over the place. And I guess I'm particularly unimpressed with what it does with the opposite of extroversion, introversion. Um, it's sort of like an introvert is a, a person who just likes to cower down In the house and is afraid to go out and actually do much of anything because it's going to involve interacting with other people and and uh, that's just going to be hard and uncomfortable and so on and well. That's maybe that's how extroverts often feel and it would be to be an introvert, but for most people who actually are introverts, and I can speak from a lot of experience as a very intense one, that's not how it is at all. They like other people. They do draw most of their energy from being by themselves, but they truly enjoy it too and find meaning and purpose in it. And it's not a hiding way.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. so uh, and uh, so in your research, since you study personality, do you use any particular inventory of personality traits or do you combine different ones that perhaps focus on different traits?
1: Um, The one I've actually ended up using the most and that's part, uh, partly just a function of the fact that I went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota where Akateligan developed the multi-dimensional personality questionnaire. And I've worked with a lot of their data where they've used it. Um, but I really think it's a better model. It's not perfect either, but perfection is probably you know kind of beyond what we could hope for. Um, but I do think it's much better. In particular, the traits are a little more separately distinguishable and he does cover a broader range of personality and it's not as socially desirably loaded he actually has measures of alienation and aggression for example so he's positively measuring the extent to which people perform these things so aggression is not just the absence of agreeableness for example
0: yes and so uh, i would also like to ask you since you also study personality throughout the lifespan of people uh, what is the earliest point in people's lives where we can reliably measure personality traits for the first time
1: well it depends very much on who you want to report on the personality because people have studied um temperament it's usually called in very young infants now um you can get quite a bit of reliability if what you're looking for is short-term reliability um meaning test retest reliability uh but over the longer term of course babies still have so much growth to go through that um um you won't get a lot of stability but a lot of the reason you won't get a lot of stability is because we don't have a clear way to to say what the equivalent of a a baby that's very reactive is by the age of four 12 25 and so on um so it's really hard to get a measure that you could be sure was tapping exactly the same thing um, and of course, the baby isn't reporting, isn't self-reporting. When you me- measure it, it's got to be um, caregivers of one sort or another who are around the baby—parents or the academy, other caretakers, of course. Um, so it's—and when you get to children, you still don't want the children, say age eight, doing much of the reporting. But you can start to get some reliability for sure from other reporters, teachers, and parents, and so on. Um, some continuity with later measures. You still got some of the problems that um, we don't know exactly what, for example, kids in general tend to just physically move a lot more than adults do. We all sort of slow down as we reach adulthood, never mind older age. In just, I mean, physical activity. How much we move around. Um, we don't know really what that translates into personality wise. Does the more active kid show more intense ability to work quietly, or is it always expressed physically? We don't really know that. So again, we have some of these problems. What translates exactly? from childhood to adulthood. Mm -hmm. We don't really know in in a lot of ways. And of course many kids are very, very shy as young children, but grow up to outgrow that shyness very completely. And the shyness may not tie necessarily with whether they are more or less introverted or
0: extroverted. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, and uh, would you say that perhaps one of the issues with studying personality and particularly when we're doing studies based on questionnaires and even more so when we're relying on parents and other people reporting how a particular child behaves that i mean we're not really sure many times uh, to what extent those reports are really reliable right
1: Oh, there's always the problem that um, anybody else making a report about stuff that inevitably involves what's going on in the person's own mind. No other person can know exactly what's going on in any of our own minds. In some level, we are the only ones who can say that. Um, So there's always that problem. So there's always this trade-off we you do that with measuring adult personality too we've got this big idea that other reports must be at some level more objective than self-reports and no there's a big one big sense in which self-report is going to be the best there's no escaping it because that self is the only one who knows what's going on in that self's mind who really knows now, we kid ourselves all the time, too, and we don't always, aren't always willing to tell the truth about what's going on in our minds, but we are the only
0: ones who know. So, there's always that problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that being said, um, uh, what what would you like for us to know about what we know nowadays? Uh, regarding the aspects of personality that are more stable and the ones that change the most throughout people's lifespans?
1: Well, the patterns that we see, I guess... (laughs) I guess the thing I would like to get across the most is when we say the correlation between um, two measures is 0.6, that's not a very impressive stability coefficient, it really isn't. <laughs> I, I once did a. Uh, I got. it happened because I, I um, was working with both psychological data and medical data and I needed to get a sense of the reliability of some of the medical test data because I only had one assessment of it, to what extent it could be considered reliable. And I learned that the way doctors look at reliability is they're, they hoped that the a test result would be within 10% of of um, the previous test result. And so I thought, what does it take to be within 10% in the psychological measure? And what I did was I simulated, I took a bunch of real scores and I simulated deviation from those real scores and a uniform distribution, no humping in the middle of the distribution or anything like that, around zero. Uniform difference from the distribution of differences of minus two standard deviations to plus two standard deviations. So four standard deviation range with no humping in the middle around zero. And I took the correlation of the resulting two sets of numbers, 0.85. And actually that's pretty typical if you look at the average difference in um, scores, the average difference in scores between two measures. With a test that's reliable at about 0.85, you usually get a, sing- a whole standard deviation. And, well, that's about what this would work out to. Now, that's a lot of play and it's way more than that 10% accuracy that doctors are hoping for with medical tests. So that was 0.85 what does that say about 0.6 or 0.3 correlation we're willing to talk <laughs> to call something steady uh, a lot more uh, play than probably is warranted so the first thing I, would, I guess i would like to say is personality isn't all that stable mm-hmm. right think, you know all of us can kind of look at ourselves and think well at some level i am the same person as i has as i have always have been but i think we can also look at ourselves and say oh my goodness i'm not at all the same person i was 20 years ago or whatever
0: mm-hmm. right okay and so uh, i mean i guess that all personality traits and all other aspects of our psychology uh must have some degree of irritability that is they must be influenced at least to some extent by our genetics but on the other hand we also have and i've also already talked with people like dr eric turkheimer and others behavioral geneticists and we talked a lot about gene environment correlations and gene environment interactions and i mean even to try to determine what is the result of pure genetic effects and pure environmental ones i mean they are very difficult to separate from each other right
1: i would say impossible and that it isn't even meaningful to try we know that genes underlie everything that goes on with us they're the at bottom there the the mechanisms that keep us going genetic expression has to keep us going it's the way all of the the biochemical processes that make us up it's through the actions of our genes that they take place our genes are constantly coding these proteins that we're constantly processing generating and processing in a whole myriad one bunch of ways but uh um but there it is they underlie everything that goes on. But everything about what they actually do when and how much and so on is mediated through the environment. It's the environment that gets it all going and keeps it all going until of course it can't anymore. Um that means that the idea that we can that we actually could come up with that this trade or that trade The variability at the population level which is of course what heritability expresses is 30 percent and this one is 32 percent and this one is 45 percent oh forget it in what environment and what population first are you talking about but even then they're so completely intertwined that it's just not a meaningful question it was very important back when many psychologists denied that the genes had anything to do with anything to lay out there, hey, look, there's a pile of evidence that that's just plain not true. And the the behavior genetic studies really performed a very important serf- service in accomplishing that. But the idea that, that it's even possible to know the heritability, it, it just doesn't mean anything. Um, And it's a wild goose chase to keep trying to narrow it down (laughs) um we're learning that i think the more it's becoming well it's been very very clear for a very long time but it's becoming it's like it's being written in big letters across across the screen Um, by the genomic studies that are coming up with, you know, there are 10,000 genes involved in in this trait and and 12,000 in this trait. We've only got (laughs) 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 20,000. So let's have a list and then what are we going to (laughs) do?
0: Yeah, exactly. But uh, to what extent would you say, for example, studies done with Uh, fraternal twins, monozygotic twins, uh, and the other types of twins that I'm not really remembering the proper term right now. I think it is dizygotic twins, but anyway, and also adoptees uh, and other people like that. To what extent do you think those types of studies help us nail down perhaps a little bit better Uh, What is the result of genetics and what is the result of the environment?
1: I think those studies help us the most to understand when they're designed in such a way that they um, say something about the intricacies of the gene-environment interactions and correlations and the sources of, in particular, correlation. and that can be done with the gene environment interaction and correlation models, and it can also be done with some of the longitudinal developmental studies. Um, Sometimes uh, very often, I think they're more valuable than the genomic studies. but they do have to be you can't just do anything and get something I mean you can't just plug in one of those models and say, oh, i ran I ran this, and here's good paper." you my results, that's not going to necessarily, it has to be a carefully designed study that's actually going to articulate something. So, that it has to be done thoughtfully like everything else. Well,
0: should be at least. <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, as you were alluding to earlier, Uh, I mean, I think that one of the uh, great frustrating things in behavioral genetics is that, and I've also talked about this with Dr. Eric Turkheimer, is that, uh, I mean, most, of our traits are polygenic. And when we're going to try to identify all of the genes that are associated with them, it is really, really, really difficult. And even through gene-wide uh, geno- or genome-wide association studies, I mean, many, many times we get one result and then we get another result and they contradict each other. So, I mean, even to pin down the gene or the completely list of genes that are associated with a particular trait it is really difficult right?
1: Oh it's extremely extremely difficult both statistically well statistically it's extremely difficult but I think at the bottom the problem is that the, the model is just not correct it's overly simplistic for what's actually going on genes don't determine much of anything we do, ha- there are a few genes that um, um, seem to, and I do emphasize the seem, seem to act deterministically. Um, Huntington's disease is certainly one of those. But if we learn anything from others of those those um, seemingly deterministic genes, such as PKU's genes, we learn that that. Someone can display PKU because of a whole bunch of different mutations Um, and someone carrying any one of those mutations cannot display the disease phenylketonuria because they have followed a diet. It's a little bit of an extreme diet, I mean an unusual diet, but it's totally workable. They can escape the disease. So if we understand metabolically what's up enough to design an environment, we can get around it. And maybe someday we will with Huntington's disease, too. And piles of the other ones. We even are making a lot of progress with people with Down syndrome, and they've got a whole extra chromosome. And it's getting to be much. The prospects for a child born with Downs are getting to be much better first as far as the the intellectual disability, but also the medical problems that are associated with having that extra chromosome. And boy, that's a big genetic slug to get a whole extra chromosome.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, okay. And since we're talking about mostly personality, but we're also going to talk a little bit about intelligence, um, I I would like to ask you if uh, perhaps there are certain contexts where the environment has a bigger effect and then others where perhaps genetics get expressed a bit more. So, for example, uh, I think that from many of the studies coming from behavioral genetics, we get the picture that uh, as children develop, when they're still, when, for example, they still live with their parents, then the environment that the parents create for them uh, has a lot of influence on on how they behave and perhaps also their personality traits but uh, as they get independent from their parents perhaps uh, also through maybe gene environment uh, through active gene environment correlations that is they being able to seek the environments that they prefer then it seems that over Time, at least in some particular traits, genetics uh, uh, adds more weight to personality.
1: <laughs> You're expressing a, um, the way it's very often expressed in the literature, but that that um contains an inherent not that can quite easily be untied but very rarely is um, the knot is that when genes and shared environment are correlated in the typical model um, shared environment is overstated the estimates are biased high when genes in non-shared environment are correlated, the genetic estimate is overstated. If what's going on is in childhood, genes in shared environment are correlated due to parental influence. But as people grow older, um, more and more they, they make their own decisions and live their own lives. So it becomes genes and non-shared environment. Then this idea that the heritability is higher in old age, in adulthood, I should say, older, when you get past childhood, not old Mm -hmm. age, um, um, is purely a function of the model's problems. What's really going on is this process of moving from gene shared environmental correlation to gene non-shared environmental correlation it's not that the heritability is getting greater it's that the model can't tell you anything about the gene environment correlation that is going on and it has these when it is in that when it's used in that situation it hides what it can't do by putting the extra stuff it can't handle in the shared environment and and when that's the source of the correlation and, and the stuff in the gene I can't deal with in the genetic stuff so it's it's an it that pattern of increasing heritability is artifactual it's a it's a function of the model and its limitations not an expression of what's actually going on <laughs>
0: okay i understand uh, and what about these and i guess that now we can refer more directly to iq and intelligence because uh, it seems to me as far as i understand it that this happens in that case so for uh, well and how, uh, it's been
1: shown uh, yes it seems to happen with, with a lot of uh, regularity with with intelligence yes
0: Mm-hmm. yes but 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 now just a different topic because we're talking about people growing up in their parents house and then moving out and creating their own environments let's say but but now a different topic let's mm-hmm. say that uh, we get two different groups of people one of them uh, grow up in a rich environment and the other one in an impoverished environment so uh, i mean uh, as happens in intelligence and probably with other psychological traits uh, the fact that people live in an impoverished environment perhaps uh, there, the environmental conditions have more of an effect on how that trait develops than perhaps in a rich environment where people have access to all resources and then perhaps their full, let's say, genetic potential gets expressed. I, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but...
1: It's the way, again, it has tended to be expressed in the literature but again we've got modeling problems and sampling problems in the studies and it doesn't show up consistently I mean there's a recent meta-analysis that suggested that it shows up in the United States but not in other countries but then there's a study in Germany that's suggesting that at least it happened there in Germany so we can't say it's the United States and nowhere else or something like that with any clarity either nor should we necessarily expect it to be Um, But it doesn't show up consistently consistently in the U.S. either. But all of those studies have been done using families using SES of origin and so that the twins involved have... um,
0: uh, sorry, could, and, could you ju- could you just tell people what is the SES? Oh, because me. because some people yeah. may not know.
1: Yeah, socioeconomic status, whether that's measured through parent- parental income or parental
0: education
1: or parental occupational status or some combination of the three, um, socioeconomic status. Sorry, um, um, the children have the same one because they're growing up in the same family with the same parents. Um, what that means is that a big chunk of the variance is left out of the models and it's exactly the chunk of variance that is would be responsible for for the parents transmitting both their genes and their environments to their kids what's the first source of that gene environment correlation well that variance the fact that the parents contribute both their genes and their household and all that goes with it to their kids so we're leaving out the very piece that probably matters the most for understanding that Mm -hmm. so what can we say about what we observe it's not very clear because we've left out the most important piece and we can't dig it out through that model Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so you all, you've also already, already alluded to earlier in the conversation to the fact that perhaps some genetic diseases also have effects in terms of personality or how personality expresses. So would you say that perhaps... Uh, it would be possible that because as we age and as we get to older age, that our mental health many times deteriorates, that that could be one of the reasons why perhaps some of our personality traits also change? Or That's, uh, that's
1: really interesting because one pattern that is showing up with quite a bit of clarity these days is that, people with mental illnesses of basically all sorts seem to remediate at uh, their mental illness seems to remediate as they grow older people who are depressed who've been chronically depressed for many many years seem to just kind of start getting along a little better people who are schizophrenic the the psychoses and so on that have really troubled them um just get less intense and less frequent and, and they just kind of starts smoothing out a little bit I don't mean that they necessarily become well completely or anything you know what other people would consider well or whatever but they seem to just remediate in other words acute mental illness seems to get better at the same time I think many people struggle especially in a society that tends to value youth and display of of physical vigor and beauty and stuff like that struggle with the fact that they're losing it and maybe they're losing it fast and and especially when they start not being able to do things they have always enjoyed and um stuff like that that's that's very hard for many people and can lead to depression and and maybe not schizophrenia because that's really rare to develop in old age but low grade kinds of things they can become more anxious they can become more just plain troubled sad um not everybody of course but given some level of this happens for sure with some frequency so it can work both both ways
0: Mm -hmm. okay so now let's talk a little bit more about intelligence because Uh, As far as I understand it, uh, IQ is highly correlated with long-term positive life outcomes, I think. So, would you say that perhaps uh, people who have higher IQs when they're young, that perhaps they reap some benefits out of it in their older age? (laughs)
1: gosh yes I mean society rewards intelligence all kinds of ways Um, you know you can sometimes look at at movie stars and rock stars and and say well they're not so bright and look at all the rewards society gives them but at the garden variety level of the vast majority of people society uh, just plain does you well if you're smart you're much more likely to get a, a really good job that can prove not just to pay your bills and so on but really satisfying and that of course even if you aren't making tons and tons of money if you've got enough to live on and to have a little bit to have a nice vacation here and there or whatever um um, and and able to take care of yourself and you are you love what you're doing boy is that a source of, of likely good health and long life and and a good good old age um i mean every step of the way if that's the kind of living situation you have from 20 to 40 to 60 to then 102 or whatever um it's just going to be an easier go than if even if you have the same amount of money, but a job that you just hate, and it drags you down every day until you finally say, "Oh, I can finally retire, and I'm out of there." And then you know, a lot of people end up not knowing what to do with themselves, even <laughs> <laughs> even when they've had those sorts of jobs. I mean, that happens to people. Um, we make things we we just plain make things much more cushy for people who've shown intelligence oh. all the way along um we've also got a situation where people born into those environments in the first place are more likely to be rather intelligent so it's like the riches go to the already well endowed all the way along the way and that just magnifies the difference that intelligence makes. If you're also born into a relatively advantaged environment, so you get a sort of head start. Plus, you've got the good genes that were sending you in that direction anyway from conception on, and every step of the way, you're you're fed yet more of it. It just ex- accentuates the differences, mm-hmm. and the, and society is getting worse in that regard. I mean, there are fewer and fewer jobs that allow, you know, really make a decent living that don't require a high level of education, for example. And of course, education is
0: heavily tied to
1: intelligence.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so as far as I understand it, what you're saying is that we have to take into account the fact that perhaps we live in societies, at least the people who live in modern societies, uh, are put into environments where we really favor people who are higher in intelligence and perhaps uh, it, it is it is becoming more and more difficult for people who are lower in intelligence even to find a job because, it, because jobs that are, I mean, manual and other things like that are uh, are fewer and fewer nowadays and even less over time. But, uh, okay, so, so that's the question about the environment and we have to take that, uh, to take that into consideration. But on the other hand, uh, wouldn't you also say that perhaps People, it is easier for people who are higher in intelligence also to perhaps uh, just to give a quick example for example if they go to the doctor they are given instructions to follow perhaps it is easier for people who have uh, higher intelligence to follow along with it than people who are lower in intelligence so and perhaps over time the effects in terms of health accumulate
1: oh absolutely and you know long before you actually go to the doctor um, and this really showed up with smoking back say in the 20s 30s and 40s everybody smoked all adults it was just the done thing um and women and men were equivalently likely to get lung cancer and lung cancer in particular heart attacks have always been a little more men but um, um lung cancer. Now that was different back around 1900. Men smoked but not women. So then of course women got less lung cancer. But as women started to smoke too, sure, and so by the 20s, 30s, and 40s, everybody smoked. All adults, basically. My mother didn't. She was a whack in World War II and she actually got part of her, she was stationed in Italy, American soldier, and um, um, she actually got paid part of her salary in cigarettes and she would give them away to her friends because they were they smoked and she didn't this was part of her salary to me that just that boggles my mind (laughs) (laughs) That that was done in world war ii but that's how common it was to smoke um anyway uh, as the news started to come out that smoking causes lung cancer in the late 50s and early 60s um the first people to quit were the most intelligent and of course that helped and even if you smoke for a lot of years quitting helps and while it crept down and now smoking is mostly a function much more a function of socioeconomic status now of course there's a link between socioeconomic status and um intelligence so that more people of lower intelligence are concentrated in the lower ends of socioeconomic status but i have to take my contact lens out something got in my eye but um um So there's still an association of intelligence, but even the people who are less intelligent but of higher socioeconomic status tend to follow the social support of nobody, or or many fewer people smoking who are of high socioeconomic status because they're in that crowd too. So it's more associated with socioeconomic status than intelligence now, but it got there by creeping from the more intelligent down the line and through that association of intelligence and socioeconomic status. But that pervades everything. The people who um, are more intelligent are, are more likely to make a real point, even if they've got total desk jobs where they sit all day of getting some exercise and they're more likely to make a point of, of um, eating good diets and following whatever the latest news on on what that that might be. And they're more likely to have a basic awareness of symptoms that could be some indication of a problem. And as when they see something, uh, now, of course, look it up on the internet and, and say, oh, I better go into the doctor and then ask intelligent questions and so on. So in other words, they can, every step of the way, just plain take care of themselves better. And of course if they get something like diabetes they'll manage that whole actually usually quite intricate process of keeping yourself on the right level of insulin and within the right dietary guidelines and so on and we're seeing that you can be diagnosed with diabetes and it used to be thought well that's you know that's it for life you're not going to be able to get rid of diabetes but people are starting to be able to through behavioral changes not if they have it really severely, and not type one, just type two, but um, um, nonetheless. In other words, how you take care of yourself can have a, make a big, big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: knowing what to do to take care of yourself is the first step. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Okay. So, intelligence and IQ, of course, is is very valuable in our modern industrialized societies. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, long-term benefits, I mean, it's not only about intelligence, because I I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I've also had Dr. James Flynn on the show and he makes a distinction that I I think it's very interesting between being intelligent and being wise. And what I mean by this is that there are people who might be very intelligent and uh, very intelligent, and perhaps they have very good uh, very good memory and they can retain a lot of information and can process information very quickly and so on. But perhaps they might also have other aspects, uh, particularly related to their personality. Where, I mean, perhaps if they are not very conscious, uh, <laughs> the, the, then, then perhaps they might not be able to to uh, extract as much value, let's say, from their intelligence as they might otherwise. And perhaps other people who are really consci- uh, conscious, perhaps the, they are able to, uh, through hard work to even get to a better position than people who are higher in intelligence. So there there are all these variables uh, playing their part here, right? Oh,
1: good good heavens, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the first thing is intelligence can be used for evil purposes too. And the brighter you are, the more effectively you'll probably do that too. So, you know, the, the people who are most evil or manipulative or however whatever you're your, um whatever type of, of bad stuff you want to consider um if that's if, it, if you're motivated to do that kind of stuff intelligence will help you do that too so um um intelligence isn't any it's not necessarily associated only with good things um and yes it's one of the most fascinating things to 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 watch and i I don't know i've kind of i've enjoyed trying to figure it out with many people that i've known along the way um here's a person who's obviously really really bright but the way they handle this or that or the other thing is really really stupid and they don't seem to see it and um it's a real puzzle how how that ends up working but boy it's all over the place and i wouldn't i don't have any sense that that i mean i know i do all kinds of stupid things too (laughs) so i don't think i'm immune from those kinds of things but where the where the the um, um you see it in individuals in particular places I mean the same pattern will show up but it's like they've got this blind spot over here um mm-hmm. and then somebody else's is in a different place but um but then you also see people that seem much more it's not that they never do anything stupid but it's much more there's not like a whole blind spot um So it's really really interesting to think about how that can be and absolutely yes it's very possible for somebody who's really conscientious to to end up going further especially than one of these people that's got quite a blind spot over here and they need it they need to be able to see you over there where they don't seem to so yes it's very possible to get further by hard work and many times people do
0: Yes, and perhaps another way by which people who are really intelligent uh, can can do bad things is that it is also easier for them to come up with justifications for their bad behavior, right? Oh,
1: yeah, oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, uh, Dr. Johnson. We've already done almost an hour here, so just before we go, would you like perhaps to tell people what are some of the best resources on the internet for them to get in touch with your work?
1: You mean like specific papers or? uh,
0: No, no, just perhaps uh, some of the best places if they want to go there and know more about what you've done and still do.
1: I have, uh, I, I, I kind of hide um, because, because I'm just not a person who really is looking for lots of attention out there, I, I guess, um, but I'm impressed that people are interested in what I do, I guess the best, uh, best online resource I've got is my webpage at the University of Edinburgh. I don't keep any other one. <laughs>
0: yeah okay well it, it does
1: it does you know have access to my papers and stuff like that
0: okay very well so i will be leaving that in the description box of this video when it's out it will be there so dr johnson again thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show it was really a pleasure to everyone well
1: thank you for for being interested in talking to me, (laughs) and I really, your conversations with people are are very interesting, you must have a lot of fun going
0: from person to person like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, that's for sure, that's for sure. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there, I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.